It's time for Forward Nation Radio. Now here he is, the host of Forward Nation Radio, David Leventhal. Welcome to Forward Nation Radio. I'm David Leventhal. Thank you for joining us for part two of our coverage of the recent Democratic debates. Following right on the heels, as promised for a change, on our first part of the debate coverage. In fact, so right on the heels of our uh, first show that uh, Mike Pence has not yet solved the coronavirus problem. Yeah, that's how quickly we are following up on part one of our debate show. Anyway, I would like to spend a few minutes of your time today talking about the issues that were raised in the debate and giving you my explanation of what I think is really going on and what's really at stake and a more nuanced discussion of those issues that you may not have picked up if you're just a casual observer of our political situation. So let's get right into it for my big takeaways of the Democratic debate. First off, and my order here will basically be pretty much chronological order as questions were raised during the debate, mostly because that's the way it appears in my notes. So that's the way I'm going to do it on the show, not in order of importance or anything like that. But um, early on, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Senator Klobuchar, was asked to defend her record as a prosecutor regarding the way prosecutions of blacks were conducted in Minnesota. Um, you might recall, if you've been paying attention to the race for a while, that this was pretty much the same problem that Kamala Harris had when she was in the race, having formerly been Attorney General of California. It was as well a problem that Mayor Pete Buttigieg has faced in the past and a little bit in this debate as well. For that matter, basically everyone who's been in that position or a position like that has had this same problem. Just about everybody anyway. Because the problem is systemic. The, the problem is that our police officers, our prosecutors, and even our politicians, local politicians, are too much in bed together. They are too much reliant upon each other. They need each other in order to succeed. Prosecutors can't do their job unless they have the full cooperation of police officers who can undermine them at every opportunity. And of course, if you are a mayor and you lose the support of your, your police officers, you're in a lot of trouble as far as your political career. They are all dependent on each other, and that is a major problem because they all work with each other rather frequently than for the rest of us who they're supposed to be working for. If you don't work with each other, you may end up in perhaps like Mayor de Blasio in New York City. You might recall that Mayor de Blasio had the temerity as mayor to address concerns over the fact that some police officers were violating the constitutional rights, maybe shooting black people without justification. As a result, the police unions completely turned on de Blasio and have been his arch nemesis throughout his mayoralty, having clearly crippled his mayoralty. They have threatened slowdowns, in other words, to stop doing their job arresting people, as long as the mayor or anybody else, like, for instance, a prosecutor, were to actually criticize their potentially criminal activities. This is a problem. And the only way out of this problem 
is that our law enforcement officials should not be overseeing themselves. It should kind of be like, I don't know, a police internal affairs unit that is actually doing its job and therefore presumably hated by everybody in the system. There needs to be some kind of independent body set up everywhere across America whose responsibility is to look into allegations of police or prosecutorial or, for that matter, political misconduct, to take it out of the hands of the usual party so that they are not reliant upon each other and, in fact, can do their job in enforcing the law. The other day, I actually was walking, I don't know how how this even came up, but my six-year-old son asked me about police officers following the law. It was an uncomfortable moment for me because... I basically had to lie to him. I don't like lying to my six-year-old son. I mean, lying to the eight-year-old, sure, but, you know, not the six-year-old. Gotta draw a line somewhere. Anyway, I said, of course the police have to follow the law. They have to follow the law just like the rest of us do, because they are citizens as well. Knowing full well, of course, that that's really not true in most cases. That, in fact, let's face it, the police officers frequently get to violate the law with complete immunity. And they do that because no prosecutor who has any kind of career ambitions will take on the police officers. Bernie Sanders was asked during the first debate held in Nevada about the fact that the Nevada Culinary Workers Union had come out against him because of his health care plan. He was asked about that and what it meant regarding his health care plan. Well, here's here's a story there. Obviously, I've talked about health care a lot, but let's talk about it in this context. The health care workers union is wrong. Fundamentally, the healthcare workers union is wrong. If the healthcare workers union is one of the few unions left in America with a little bit of teeth and bargaining position, good for them. And they perhaps have negotiated a very uh, beneficial healthcare package for its members. Again, good for them. Now, some of these workers may not realize it fully, but they're paying for that Cadillac health insurance plan. They're paying because they negotiated it as part of the contract. If they weren't negotiating the benefits, $15,000, $20,000 a year, whatever it is that the company will be paying for their health care, they would be getting increased salary. They'd be negotiating for that instead. So they negotiated this great insurance policy, and again, good for them. But they gave up a lot of money in order to do that. So here's what the proposal might be if instead of negotiating this plan and it costing you $15,000, let's say you negotiated the extra $15,000 with that $15,000, you had to pay maybe $5,000 for healthcare plan that was as good or just about as good. Would you come out ahead? I'm making up these numbers on the fly, so I'm not sure what the math comes out to right now, but I'm pretty confident the math comes out that these workers would be ahead. In other words, they don't realize that they're giving something up in order to get this great benefit in their contract, this great health care plan. What's particularly ironic about this is because Bernie's health care plan, his Medicare for All plan, is especially generous. It is a very generous plan, more generous, in fact, than current Medicare, as people have pointed out which means that most of these workers would likely even get a better health insurance plan for less money and more in-pocket money, actually salary coming from the company. They would get probably as good a plan, maybe better, for less money. They wouldn't have to worry about 
are they making appointments with the right doctors? Are the doctors prescribing the right medicines? Are they going, is the ambulance taking them to the right hospitals? They wouldn't have to worry about all that because they would be covered under a very generous Sanders plan. And again, they would be paid more money as a result. Bernie points out that we tend to be the only country that basically can't seem to do that. Well, why is it we can't seem to do that? You know, this is, I referred in part one of our show about Pete Buttigieg's offensive Republican talking point about how union members, according to Sanders, don't know what's good for them. And he wants to leave it up to union members to make their own choices. Well, of course, as I indicated last time, fuck you, Pete, because you're you're full of shit. And this is wonderful sounding Republican talking points that make no sense in the real world. Bearing in mind that we are the only country that can't manage to provide a better health insurance plan for less money to all, to all of our citizens. What, what Pete apparently is saying is that uh, uh, while American union members know what's good for them, the French, the British, the Dutch, the German, the Canadians, the entire rest of the fucking civilized world apparently don't know what's good for them. We're just so much smarter. Yes, this country that consumes sugar at record paces leading to problems with obesity, diabetes, diabetes. this country with drinking problems, with an opioid epidemic, etc. Our people can make better choices than all the people in the rest of the world. In fact, he, again, as I pointed out the other day, he's basically just made the Republican argument for getting rid of the entire regulatory state. I mean, why ban poisons? Don't you trust people drinking or dr- drinking liquids to know what's good for them? But anyway, it it goes deeper from the fact the fact that the union workers overwhelmingly are making a bad choice that they would be better off and have more money and have better health insurance if they went with Sanders' plan. But here's the bigger problem here, and it's what it says to some extent about us. I have friends I've had, I've had this conversation with. People are worried about change. They're worried about how things are going to affect them. They're worried about losing some of the benefits that they have, whether or not they actually make the connection for what, with what they're paying for it. And to a large extent, what this comes down to is basically, I got mine, Jack. Screw you. That to a large extent, what these workers are saying, even if they are right, is I might lose a little bit of service. I might lose a little bit of benefit. Or as my friends have noted, I might have to wait a little bit longer to go to a doctor just because a whole bunch of other people now get to go to the doctor. I may lose a little bit of something just to ensure that 30, 40, 50 million Americans who do not have access to health care actually have access to health care. And that's kind of a problem because not only are the union members wrong, but ultimately they're pretty damn selfish. Not that any of the politicians on the stage could ever say that out loud, of course. Of course, what I really did want to hear Bernie say, and he kind of said it at one point in the second debate, though not quite. What I wanted to hear Bernie say back to the questioner and to the people on the stage is, who thinks Medicare for all is bad policy versus who thinks it's bad politics? Because I don't think there's many people on that stage who think it's bad policy. They're just not sure that they could sell it to an ignorant and selfish American public. In a related moment, Joe Biden had one of his best moments of of the two debates when he talked about the fact that he would pay for his health care proposals by making Mike Bloomberg and other very rich people pay as much taxes as their secretaries. 
I have talked at length on this show how Warren Buffett years ago had written a book where he pointed out that he paid a much lower uh, tax rate than his secretary did and offering a million dollars to any corporate executive who could demonstrate that that was not the case for him. Nobody haven't taken him up on that offer, apparently. This is, I think, this is one of those points that I think the Democrats just need to hammer, hammer, hammer. We talk about the cost of their proposals. We talk about thing, how much it'll cost for, for child care, education, things that need to be done in this country, paying for, for infrastructure. And I think it just needs to be stated over and over and over and over again that the problems with this country cannot be solved as long as the wealthiest people in the history of the planet manage to not pay their fair share in taxes. And by people, of course, I'm also referring to corporations who God knows don't pay anywhere near their fair share of taxes, more likely not paying any taxes at all. Warren followed up with a big moment for her, and she brought up her discussion of the wealth tax. In fact, the problem with her wealth tax being only that it's not ambitious enough. The idea of a wealth tax, as far as I'm concerned, is an absolute no-brainer. You cannot run a functioning society when too much of society's resources are locked away in vaults, presumably in overseas tax havens, not available to the country or the public to use to benefit the economy. That money needs to be clawed back. Pointed out in the last show about Bloomberg answering what should have been a simple question, do you really deserve to have as much money as you have? The obvious answer is, of course, not. It's ridiculous. Nobody in this country or this world should have this kind of money and the power that it brings. On the other hand, this is so obvious and it's kind of scary how many people this basic, reasonable argument doesn't seem to work for. I was asked by a student in class the other day. They said, he has a friend, wasn't even asked, he was just telling the story because he thought it was pretty comical to his credit. He said he has a friend who is planning on being a billionaire at some point because, you know, that's the way these things tend to work. And is, as I like to refer to it, uh, anticipatorily pricky. An anticipatory prick. He knows once he's a billionaire, he's going to want to be a selfish prick. So he's starting out right now, (laughs) even before he's a billionaire and almost certainly before he has any hopes of actually becoming a billionaire. But he basically says, if and when I become a billionaire, why should I? I don't want to give any more back to society. Wow, let's hope that that shining light of American decency succeeds professionally later on. But anyway, it gives me an opportunity to point out the deal that America's had with with its citizens since, well, for a very long time. And the deal is, by investing in the United States, by investing in the people of the United States, we are actually more likely to become fabulously wealthy, maybe even billionaires, through a working public education system, through an infrastructure system that works, a government regulatory state, healthcare, things like that, we improve the likelihood that Americans will become billionaires. The deal that we've had in this country for ages has been, we will make it more likely that you get to become fabulously rich. In return, once you become fabulously rich, we're going to ask you to give a little bit more back to make sure that other people have the same opportunity that you had and can follow in your footsteps. This is obvious. I ask my students this every semester. And of course, I say, how many of you would take that deal? And every hand in the class goes up. Of course you take that deal. Would you agree to pay a little bit more back when you get ridiculously rich in return for the much more opportunity to become ridiculously rich? Of course you would take that deal. 
but I point out to them, when will you not take this deal? Well, once you get fabulously rich, of course, then you will turn on Fox News and you will convince yourself with their help that, in fact, you owe nothing to anybody and you should get to keep all the money that you've made all this time. And that's what's going on there. And we need to claw this money back. It's not unfair. It's not income redistribution. It's just fairness and running a civilized society. All right, moving on to a different subject here. Stop and frisk came up. Uh, Bloomberg, of course, has been quizzed a lot on his record regarding stop and frisk, the fact that New York City targeted minorities to be accosted in the street and have their civil rights basically violated at length. Stories abound of young African Americans, even those who are middle class, successful. One famous case with a guy whose father was a police officer who on his same trip home over a few blocks got accosted more than once. Well, Bloomberg pointed out that he stopped stop and frisk once he saw that it was being done unfairly. In case you don't know where this is going, he did not. Joe Biden later piped in and said, you didn't stop it, Obama stopped it. Well, he really didn't do it either. Do you know who stopped stop and frisk? Federal judges stopped stop and frisk. Federal judges said this is a violation of civil rights, is a violation of the United States Constitution and the New York Constitution, in the case of New York. You cannot do this anymore. So two things here. One, Bloomberg kept talking to, to justify his position. He kept talking about how he reduced stop and frisk by 95%. That is a great example of the misuse of statistics, of Mark Twain's famous line about there being three types of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. People who want to misuse statistics, i.e. Fox News and its ilk, can do so to make numbers look different than the reality that they're purported to convey. The 95% reduction from stop and frisk Bloomberg was after the federal judges ordered changes in the program and also succeeded a massive buildup in stop and frisk, which meant that its use actually increased over the course of the Bloomberg administration. That's one thing. What I also want to come out of this discussion is, can we talk for a moment again about judges and the importance of judges? Can we talk about the importance of people sitting behind the bench who have respect for law and order, respect for the Constitution, respect for the citizens of this country? Can we talk for a moment about the fact that they're rapidly being replaced by Republican Party apparatchiks, by Trump and Mitch McConnell? And that the Democrats better win big in 2020 and they better reverse this in our federal court system. But talking about this at length, it's one of my favorite subjects. The federal judiciary does not represent the interests of the American public. It does not represent the interests of American voters. It has been, it has been installed by a minority party that knows no restrictions on the bounds of its power, flexing its muscles. It's not just that Democrats need to stop the movement in favor of conservative justice. We need to wind it back. Anyway, moving on, uh, transparency. Bloomberg was asked about releasing his tax returns and they were asked about releasing health records, etc. So the issue of transparency came up. Obviously, this has been an issue that, well, has been front and center to some extent during the Trump administration, Trump being the least transparent president we've had, at least in the modern history of presidents. The interesting thing here is 
Here is a t- actually a tough question, and unlike most of the questions that are raised at these debates or raised in our political environment right now, there isn't an obviously wrong answer. And I didn't misphrase that. I One of the reasons that I get to be so certain about a lot of things that I discuss on this show, I'm never sure what the right answer is, but I can be pretty damn sure that the answer that's being advanced by Donald Trump and the Republican Party is clearly the wrong answer. We don't have right answers on any issue, but we sure as hell have wrong answers, and that's pretty much what we're enacting right now all across America. But anyway, on this issue of transparency, I I thought about this. I think, you know, this is really a tough question. What, regarding health, is the public entitled to know? And I think about that. I think, could FDR be elected president today? It was only or at least in large part because people didn't understand the extent of his disability from polio, that he was able to be elected president four times. Obviously, he's a president I like and admire. Could we have someone like that in today's environment? Do we really get to know all about the health, all the health issues of people running for president? Maybe there's a middle ground there. And maybe there could be some kind of independent actuarial service in our government that will be provided secretly with medical records that it needs and then spit out some kind of actuarial number. So we could see the, the odds actuarially that this person is going to survive the next four years. Maybe that's all we really need to know about someone's health. Uh, as far as their taxes and their finances, of course, uh, no, that's not the same thing. We should know about their taxes and their finances. And I think that's Pretty straightforward. You run for president. There are too many conflicts there. There are too many issues involved. Your taxes should be released and your all of your financial information should be disclosed. Talking to you, Donald, as well as Michael Bloomberg and others. And finally, because it's come up during the debate when it comes to transparency, it came up in the debate several times regarding Bloomberg, is the issue of NDAs or non-disclosure agreements. Well, it's not quite the same as health or financial records, but it does fall into this area of transparency. I have spoken at length about the fact that NDAs should be per se unenforceable all across America. That's right. I think that basically NDAs should be unenforceable unless the party trying to enforce one can go into court and convince the court that enforcing that NDA is in the public's interest. The fact is what NDAs are are payoff between two parties who are complicit in making money or saving money by making sure the problem doesn't get fixed and possibly subjecting other people to it. So I'm not without sympathy, and I understand people who've been victimized by crimes or other misconduct. I understand that they want to be compensated, and a lot of that compensation depends on the fact that they keep their mouths shut. But I want to make sure that we all understand that what you are doing is you are saying, if you pay me a little bit more money, maybe a lot more money, I will shut up and allow you to continue to engaging in the misconduct that you're engaging in and paying me off for. Does that strike anyone as problematic? It's problematic. And for the most part, again, other than if Google could, could, should, could go into court and show why its non-disclosure agreement is for the best interests of America, nobody should get to enforce these things. Period. The end. More on NDAs, by the way, in a show real soon, upcoming. 
Uh, climate change came up during the debate. Climate change, can you believe it, actually came up during the debate. Well, you know, it's a Democratic debate, not a G- uh, GOP debate. But climate change, or as the, G- as the GOP defines it, the antidote to the coronavirus. Uh, Bernie Sanders was once again put on the defensive, asked about ending fracking jobs in Pennsylvania. And once again, union jobs in Pennsylvania that will be lost if we stop destroying the planet. Okay, that, w- that wasn't the way it was phrased by the moderator. That's the way it's being phrased by me. So the question, Senator Sanders, your plan to prevent planetary destruction might cost people some jobs. How do you defend yourself? Well, I guess by the way I rephrased that question, how he defends himself I think should be pretty damn obvious. It is also once again a reminder of what I've been talking about the last few days and beyond about how really hard it is to govern in America. How once again, one of the greatest impediments, aside from big money, one of the greatest impediments to a functioning democracy in America is the actual American voter who doesn't have enough sense or selflessness to make the right choices. Uh, You know, the soldiers union would be really upset if we stopped wars. The corrections union, of course, this is actually a true story. Corrections officers union is very upset if we actually do something about the, the prison pipeline. We're sending millions of people to prison in America. Way more people in prison than any other country in the world. Really? I mean, should we keep making typewriters because the typewriter union is upset? They might lose some jobs? Should we keep making horse-drawn carriages because the horse-drawn carriage union workers might lose their jobs? I don't mean to be unsympathetic, but we need to be able to move forward in this country. Times change, the world change, changes, job, jobs change. And we need to be able to change with them. Again, I'm not insensitive. I understand that there will be a lot of upheaval. I understand that workers are being caught in the middle of this through no fault of their own. So obviously there should be a policy to retrain these workers, to provide a social safety net to these workers, to make sure that they can land on their feet in a job that isn't obsolete and that isn't destroying the planet. The obvious example there to, to, to workers who are fracking is let's train them to work in the solar power industry or the wind power industry or the geothermal industry. Let's give them the tools they need to be successful and let's pay them in the meantime while they're being retrained. Gee, why hasn't anybody thought of that before? Oh, right. Hillary Clinton thought about that before. That was her proposal. I'm willing to bet that that's part of Bernie Sanders' proposal, Elizabeth Warren's proposal, and probably everybody's proposal on that Democratic stage. There will be upheaval. On the other hand, Donald Trump said, I will give you your jobs back and it's okay. We won't be destroying the planet because I'm making believe that it doesn't exist. And millions of Americans said, yep, sign me up for that proven themselves to be both ignorant and selfish. Yes. Sorry. Your job's destroying the planet. We'll help you find a new one. Uh, It is a reminder that in this country today, it is absolutely politically taboo to ask any American to sacrifice or to even work with us to make a better country. I am reminded course of JFK's just so uplifting, inspiring words in his inaugural address. 
Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. We go back to 1961 for those inspiring words because any politician who's uttered them past 1961 hasn't had an inaugural because he or she's out of politics, such as America, such as Americans. Another question I want to go into a little more in depth was the idea that small businesses, what do you say to small businesses that are benefiting from the Trump tax cut? Well, of course, the answer to that question is, yeah, right. Small businesses are not benefiting from the Trump tax cut. Period, dash, end of sentence, end of paragraph. Small businesses are not benefiting from the Trump tax cut. (laughs) For the most part, They didn't get any money aimed at them. They didn't get any benefits aimed at them. To the extent that they did get some ancillary benefits, it doesn't matter. They're not benefiting from the tax cut. And the reason they're not benefiting from the tax cut, and it's not just sour grapes. Big businesses are are saving a whole lot and benefiting a whole ton from the tax cut. And do you know who competes with these big businesses? Whatever's left of the small businesses. And if your competitors are being paid a whole hell of a lot and you're being paid crumbs, this does not help you in the long run. You are losing. It is once again continuing to change this country from one that is hospitable to small businesses to one that is destroying small businesses in favor of big businesses, which is what our entire economic system is becoming filled with. Buttigieg handled this one pretty well. He talked about the fact that big businesses are the ones who are saving a lot, although he didn't have enough time to explain it quite as fully as I hope that I just have. That big businesses saving a lot isn't just sour grapes. It's actually costing small businesses. Elizabeth Warren, as she generally does, also did really well on this one, talking about the need to invest in the United States. You know what small businesses need? They need a working power grid. They need a good high-speed internet. They need good roads. All the things that America no longer invests in. You know why? Because we're not getting any money from big businesses and from really rich people. So all these things that small businesses need to thrive. Oh, by the way, educated workers might be one of them. We're not really spitting those out anymore either. But small businesses don't have those anymore because we've instead given all the money to big businesses. Amy Klobuchar, again, highlighted this point. She did well on this one. Pretty much all the candidates did well on this one. Amy pointed out that Donald Trump recently just told the rich that, or after the tax cut was passed, he said, you guys just got a whole lot richer. And therein pretty much sums where we are right now. And again, it's not class warfare to point out that if the rich are celebrating, the rest of us are probably screwed. By the way, as long as we're on the subject, let's not forget very briefly what Donald Trump told the Jewish audience in that regard. Remember when recently when he told the Jewish audience that you guys don't like me, but you're going to vote for me anyway because I'm putting money in your pockets? Because after all, Donald Trump, apparently knows what we Jews are all about and the only thing that we care about. Yes, my fellow Jews, keep voting for these scumbags. That's going to work out well. 
Uh, finally, Bernie Sanders did well on the same question about small businesses, and he showed his hand if he becomes the Democratic nominee going up against Trump. He went to his what's going to be his big tagline, which is socialism for the rich. We don't get to have socialism for the poor. We don't get to have resources for the poor because what we've got is all of our resources going to the rich. Again, Bernie Sanders and the Democratic candidates' policies get cheered, though the word socialism gets booed by Americans who don't know any better. The filibuster. They talked about the filibuster during the debate, and as I'm watching that, I'm thinking, boy, I wonder if there are some people out there who really understand what's going on here. There are 100 members of the United States Senate. In order to pass a bill, you need a majority, generally, of the United States Senate. Well, that's not really so true anymore. There is this procedural hurdle called the filibuster, where anyone can basically check a box and say, I filibuster a bill. When a bill gets filibustered, it can't be passed with 51 votes. It needs 60 votes, basically, to pass. I've talked about the filibuster at more length in the past. I'm doing this quickly now. That's the filibuster. What the filibuster means is that a majority of senators that don't have a 60-vote supermajority can't get anything done in the United States Senate. Since the United States Senate is set up in a way where small states, Republican states, have outsized say, what this basically means is that under any foreseeable circumstances, the Republicans will have a veto in the United States Senate. That's why people like Elizabeth Warren are talking about getting rid of the filibuster so that if the Democrats take over the Senate, they can get things done. The fear and the concern there, of course, is that the Democrats getting a majority of votes in the Senate also tend to have more than 40 senators, even when they're in the minority. (coughs) So one of the things that have slowed down the Republican effort to destroy this country has been the filibuster from Democrats. What the Democratic candidates, most of them, are pointing out is that the Republicans never play by the rules and never play fairly. They want to get something done. They will get rid of the filibuster, as they did with federal judge appointments some time ago. They will get rid of the filibuster so that they can just do whatever the hell they want unconstrained. And maybe the Democrats, if they take power, need to be willing to do the same thing so that we can get through bills that actually benefit the American public. Uh, coronavirus, um, we're, we're living in the midst of an epidemic pandemic now that's getting worse and worse and worse. The first American is confirmed to have died. We've had transmission America. It's, it's looking like this is going to be a major global crisis. They were asked how they would deal with it. I'm not going to delve into the specifics of that because I don't have any qualifications to do so. I will point out, though, that this is a time where we might appreciate the idea of having competent people in our government. We might like the idea of people running our federal agencies who know what the hell they're doing, not industry lobbyists and loyalists for the stupid, most criminal and most ignorant person who's ever occupied the White House. This is a time where maybe Americans will learn to appreciate government and not feel that I'm from the government and I'm here to help are terrifying words. This is a time where we should be talking about competent people in government. We should once again be talking about mandating paid sick leave. We should be requiring health care for all. Maybe one thing we could do when Republicans are telling us to listen to our doctors 
is say that every American can go to a doctor for free if they have symptoms that might indicate coronavirus and then we'll be treated for free. You know, kind of on our way to Medicare for all. Maybe we should work on nutrition rules and fix our government and fix the way we treat people in America. They talked about schools. Very briefly, I want to weigh in on this with the concept of charter schools, the idea of charter schools basically being to destroy teachers' unions to a a large extent, although public charter schools do allow a certain amount of innovation and flexibility, and we should be learning from them where we can. Charter schools overall do not perform better than public schools, but to the extent that they might experiment innovations that we can learn from, good for them. But you want to fix our public schools? The first thing we all need to agree on is to increase our social safety net. Is to fix nutrition, to make sure that our children are going to school and are not worried about meals, they're not hungry, that their parents have the, the, the financial security they need to send their kids to school every day. We need to fix the things that happen outside of school that are hurting our schools. Oh, and... By the way, why don't we try paying our teachers like we pay Wall Street criminals? I think Bernie Sanders talked about teacher pay, and it was kind of remarkable. I forget what the number he used. Something like every teacher should be guaranteed at least $60,000 a year. You realize that if most people on Wall Street were paid $60,000 a week, they would be insulted? That's kind of a problem. Maybe we should start treating teachers in America like we treat Wall Street criminals and see how that goes for education. And finally, the last thing I want to note before I let you go, again, I'm running a little bit long here. Thanks for your patience. They talked about Russia. And what will you do about Russia's threat with regard to the 2020 election? I just want to point here out here for a moment how nice it is to see Americans treating Russia's interference with U.S. democracy with the alarm that it deserves. Treating it for instance, Russia undermining U.S. democracy, treating it as a problem, not an unalloyed good, like the President of the United States. Oh, and David Brooks, here's a thought. Um, Isn't it nice to see somebody who is concerned about Russia's evils today and not just about Russia's evils from 50 years ago? Anyway, that's my take on the issues in the recent debates. Thanks for joining us. I look forward to speaking to you soon. You've been listening to Forward Nation Radio with David Leventhal. 